Hello and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, it was the deadliest fire in the history of the U.S. federal prison system, and it happened at the federal prison in Danbury, Connecticut, a tragic blaze in the middle of the night with deaths and dozens of injuries in the tricky setting of a prison. My guests are two men who were there, Bob Young, a former physician's assistant in the prison's medical department, and Bob Lovell, a former Danbury police lieutenant who was the first outsider on the scene. And now stay tuned for 7777, a very unlucky day at Danbury's Federal Prison. In 1940, a new federal prison opened in Danbury, Connecticut. It was located on vacant land left over from the formation of nearby Candlewood Lake in the 1920s. The 365-acre complex sat on the top of a rise with a good view of the countryside around it. It was located on State Route 37 north of Danbury Center. It was a medium-security prison, originally designed to accept men at least 24 years of age who had less than five years remaining on their sentences for nonviolent crimes. Well, it was Thursday, July 7, 1977, or 7777, 37 years after the prison opened. Early that morning, an inmate called the main control room from his location in Dormitory G to report a fire at the dorm. It was 1.15 in the morning. Well, according to the U.S. government's General Accounting Office report, which would later chronicle the circumstances surrounding the deadliest fire at a federal prison in U.S. history, there were claims made that the officer suggested he didn't believe the caller and hung up. Other calls, though, quickly followed. It was true there was a fire in Dormitory G. Most of the facts pertaining to the fire and the response in the immediate minutes after it broke out are contained in that GAO reports. That night, there were 839 inmates being housed in 14 units. One of the 14 was Dormitory G. The majority of the 80 inmates in that unit were former drug addicts who were participating in a rehabilitation program. It was one of two such units at the prison. Well, the on-site staff consisted of just 10 people for the entire prison, and the only fire hydrants were located outside the prison. Five inmates would die that night, and 80 others, inmates, staff, and first responders, would be injured, some critically. Well, inmates had discovered a small smoldering fire and some jackets hanging on the washroom wall. They used the three fire extinguishers in the unit to try and put out the fire. When that didn't work, they got mop buckets and filled them with water from the shower heads in the bathroom showers, their only other source of water in that section. Well, the unit's standpipe fire hose was in a locked metal cabinet, and it was inaccessible to those inmates. And by this point, the flames had been fanned by an updraft from an open window. The flames were propelled in a swirling motion along the wall and ceiling, igniting both surfaces. The fire was expanding rapidly. Well, it turned out that the padding on the walls was made of a substance that was supposed to be fireproof, but ended up giving off toxic fumes in the intense heat. Two persons who were there that night were among the very first to respond to the incident, and they spent the night helping to manage the situation in a variety of ways. Lieutenant Bob Lovell, then with the Danbury Police Department, was actually the very first person to respond. 
He was on patrol in his squad car when he got a call over his radio. He was told to get to a landline telephone and call into headquarters. So he stopped at a phone on Route 37 and called in. He said they had gotten a call from the prison that there was some kind of a, uh, a problem. He wanted me to go up there and find out what the problem was. He drove up the main entrance driveway to the administration building in front of him. And as I'm coming up, I'm looking and I'm seeing a glow. And I think, so what the hell is that glow? I don't remember them having lights like that. So Lieutenant Lovell drove past the front door of the main administration building and started to turn the corner past the building where an imposing gate stopped further progress. From there, though, he could see the fire. Okay, now I know what the problem is. So I radioed in. I said, we've got a fire. I don't know how bad. Get fire apparatus up here as quick as you can. Bob Young was, at the time, a physician's assistant in the medical unit at the prison. His shift had just ended at 12 midnight. He says that some of that second shift crew, for example, some of the guards, or like him, some of the staff from medical, used to like to get together after the shift had ended. It's not uncommon for second shift you know, to get together to, uh, to tip a couple after work. This particular evening, they were at a restaurant just south of the prison, also on Route 37. They're shutting the place down. It's about 1.15. We're heading out the door, and I see all the fire trucks heading north on 37. At that point, I didn't know it was the prison, but I figured, you know, with that many fire trucks going, it, it had to have been some kind of a major fire and decided to you know, pull out and go and follow them. As he drove north on Route 37, he rounded the curve by the Hallis Farm Market, and from there the situation became clear. The prison comes into view up on the, the hill, and uh, I could see all the smoke over the prison. And, uh, you know, what I said at the time was, good grief, now what? One of the many challenges that night was securing the main driveway from Route 37 to the prison. Bob Young says it's something that every prison employee has to think about, and particularly during a confusing catastrophe like this one. The last thing they needed was to have, you know, family or uh, somebody else who sees it as an opportunity to cause trouble. You know, any number of these things go through your mind that you want to try and prevent, and you've got to keep the, the line open because that's the one entrance in and out. Police Lieutenant Bob Lovell had the unenviable task of trying to maintain order for all of the various response vehicles along that driveway, while also trying to ensure that no prisoners escaped. So he dispatched his responding officers to key locations. And I sent another guy down to the foot of the driveway to make sure that, you know, nobody other than authorized people could come up. Bob Young came across that officer when he drove up the main driveway on Route 37. I got past that, I parked and ran into the building and uh, got my keys, got to the uh, sally port, and it was uh, just total chaos inside. A sally port is that traditional double-door security entryway where you enter one chamber, doors close behind you, and then they open in front of you, completely controlling your ability to pass through. Well, indeed, chaos had set in. The GAO report says, in fact, that individual staff members were left to make their own decisions as situations dictated. The normal chain of command had broken down. Not knowing who was there, and at the time, I still didn't really have a, a full idea what was going on, how bad things were. It was, uh, you know, the, the medical unit would have been the, the place to congregate, and, uh, you know, then we'd go out different directions to, uh, to help what we could do. The control room operator referenced the multi-step prison fire emergency plan,
but it turned out to almost cause more problems. For example, one of the earliest steps was to dispatch the inmates who were part of the on-site fire brigade, but a decision was made not to do that. Instead, they decided to rely on the Danbury Fire Department, and that was down at step 12 in the fire plan. So the call to the fire department from the prison didn't go out until 15 minutes after the fire was already going. Beyond that, Bob Young reminds us that there's an undisputable truth that one cannot avoid when talking about the issue of getting prisoners safely away from the fire. Prisons, uh, Danbury's no exception, are built primarily to keep people in, not to let people out. That creates its own problem when it comes to a problem like a fire or uh, could have been a tornado. It could have been any number of things. He says that once he got into the medical unit and was able to quickly assess the situation, it became clear to him that this would be a mass casualty incident. His wife worked as a nurse at Danbury Hospital, and he realized he should alert them about what was coming. Yes, it was a fire. Yes, there are injured all over the place. Yes, there's at least, I think at that time, there were two that were identified as being dead. You know, kind of giving them a heads up before the first group starts rolling in. This, in turn, allowed the hospital to get the word out to their staff in a rather sobering manner. They announced over the, the PA system that Code D is now in effect. You know, and they also added the words that this is not a drill. He says the hospital snapped to attention and immediately set aside non-essential matters in order to maximize their access to intensive care facilities. By canceling all the surgery, they had the recovery room, which is, you know, very much capable of handling intensive care patients. Lieutenant Tony Legardo of Engine 23 by Danbury Hospital was the first fire engine on the scene. He told his driver to head to the front of the administration building where Bob Lovell was positioned. As you're standing in front of the building, just to the right of the end of the building, there's a gate. And that would be the, the way the fire department would have had to go in to attack the fire. Of course, it was locked. Bob Young says that given the circumstances, he wasn't surprised that the gate was locked. Trying to go in six different directions at once, yeah, I suppose somebody would have been nice if they thought of, you know, oh, we got to open the gate for the fire department. But, you know, they're just so overwhelmed with what's going on. Things that, you know, just everything's coming down around their ears. Again, there were only 10 staff people on duty trying to manage this ever-escalating calamity. Lieutenant Legardo's truck leaned on the siren to get somebody to open the gates. The commanding officer eventually came out, but either didn't have the key or it broke off in the lock. In either event, he had to run back inside. The fire department realized that precious time was wasting. Finally, Lieutenant Legardo decided it was time, in Lovell's words, to take the gates. Tony is sitting there, and we're getting fire apparatus coming up from behind him. And Tony finally tells the chauffeur, you know, we got to get through the gate. The chauffeur backed the machine up, took the gate down, and in, in they went to attack the fire. Bob Lovell says his mission to keep inmates from possibly escaping was also becoming more complicated. The fire department had gone around to the other side of the building and cut a hole in the fence so they could attack the fire from that end. That meant that he had to dispatch another one of his men to that area to protect the perimeter. Well, one of the more controversial aspects of the fire that night was an allegation about a door to Dormitory G that might have been used to allow inmates to escape the flames and smoke. Some inmates claimed that the door had been unlocked 
but that one of the staff ran down the hallway and locked it before they could get out. Prison officials say just the opposite. They say it had been locked and a staff member was trying to unlock it. In any regard, the result was a large number of inmates pushing against the locked door, screaming and pounding their fists on the door in an unsuccessful effort to get it unlocked. Here's Bob Young. There were initial reports that the lieutenant that was on duty at the time ran up and slammed the door shut and locked it. First of all, that doesn't sound like something any of the staff would have done, especially knowing it was a fire. And the second thing is that uh, you know the GAO report didn't lend any credibility to that story. He says the truth was that basic physics led to the initial problem. You have a locked door, and they're trying to get out. To, you've got a, a crowd pushed up against the door, uh, and it jams the locking mechanism. He says that there was definitely an effort to get the door opened, but the situation ended tragically. The guard on the other side puts the key in, trying very hard to get that to turn, and uh, you know, apparently you know, enough force that even though the lock wouldn't move, the top of the key did, and it snapped off. Nevertheless, the story hit the media the next morning, largely because inmate Walter Tyson, who was being transported between the hospital and the prison, managed to call out the claim to a New York Times reporter as he went by. The way the inmates were finally able to be brought out was through a catwalk adjacent to Dormitory G. It required unconscious inmates to be carried on the backs of rescuers through the thick smoke. Bob Young says the intensity of the fire and the difficulty of escaping the blaze definitely made it a very harrowing situation for inmates and rescuers alike. And as often happens with fire... It wasn't the flames that were the main trouble. It was a confined area, and the fire really got going, so there were some burns involved, but uh, that was not the uh, the cause of death or the cause for most of the injuries. Uh, it was all smoke inhalation, and in some cases it was, uh, it was quite severe. Once Bob Young had the chance to treat a number of inmates and first responders, it became pretty clear to him that prioritization needed to occur quickly. By that time, the ambulances were showing up and we were just helping with triage, you know, get the more seriously injured or at least appeared more seriously injured out of the uh, prison setting sooner than the, uh, than the others, much like the military would do on the battlefield. With the sheer number of serious injuries, he says it was extremely difficult for both him and the ambulance crews to even figure out where to begin. They came in through the back gate and into the main courtyard, and uh, you know, of course, they're all being flagged down by other inmates to take care of this person or that person, so they had to make some kind of a decision themselves. He says the medical training for all of the EMS crews came in extremely handy that night. This person is Let's say he's he's unconscious. Uh, you're having trouble breathing, so forth. You know, they can kind of uh, develop an idea of what's going on with him, um, and that it needs to be attended to relatively quick. So they would load him up in the ambulance and then head off for the hospital. Prison guards who were rescuing inmates faced particularly difficult conditions. You're running back and forth going in. If you're a prison guard, you don't have a a, a mask and uh, you know a, an oxygen tank or something, and you you end up going in, you're pulling them out, sooner or later you're going to get overcome. And he says tending to the injuries in the medical unit even proved problematic. One of the problems that we had at the time was that the uh, the, the healthcare unit was on second floor over the, over the control room. And when you have um, the number of injured, you know, that are, you know, being supported, being carried, whatever, 
uh, you know, having a flight of stairs to the second floor is not exactly conducive to good care. Outside the prison, Lieutenant Lovell had his hands full trying to keep order amongst the absolutely unbelievable response of ambulances. I never realized how many ambulances we had in this in this area, because they had ambulances from from all of us. Memory serves me correctly. We even had a couple from New York State. He says it was sort of like a traffic jam on a highway. It's only like the Long Island Expressway at, at rush hour. It's just a steady stream of ambulances going by. They'd stop. They'd be there for you know maybe a few minutes, maybe a little bit longer, just long enough to load the patient, and then off they went. The only saving grace was that thanks to the design of the driveway, which allowed ambulances to drive around a circle and pull up directly to the front door, the operation could be managed. They were bringing the the prisoners out who were injured, mostly all with smoke inhalation, uh, primarily through the front door. Although he was able to successfully manage the flow, Bob Lovell says it was overwhelming. You talk about mass confusion. There was just a steady line of ambulances coming and going from that building. He says he couldn't help but wonder why some prisoners were even being sent to the hospital. Seeing some of those prisoners, the way they came out, it kind of surprises me that there weren't more fatalities. Some of those guys, as they were brought out and put in the ambulance, you know, I, I looked out and I said to myself, why are they putting them in an ambulance? Put them in a hearse. Ironically, Bob Young says that one of the prison staff members who had to be taken to the hospital was the same lieutenant who some of the inmates had claimed locked the open door they were trying to use to escape. One of the people taken to the hospital was the uh, the lieutenant of the guard from that shift who apparently had a heart attack. It seems that the overwhelming nature of the incident took its toll on him. He did, however, survive. All five fatalities that night occurred among the inmate population. The overwhelming majority of the injured also were prisoners. One of the other complicating factors that night was just trying to communicate. Bob Young says there were precious few options. Face-to-face, talking to people, or, you know, if it's outside, it's yelling at someone. You know, I, I need help, get over here, kind of thing. You know, the walkie-talkies and so forth. Yeah, the guard, some of the guards had them, but they didn't have enough to go around for everyone. And, of course, after the phone system in Dormitory G went dead, the inmates had no means of communicating other than their mouths. At Danbury Hospital, the code D was proving to be a major undertaking. Bob Young says word of their issues made their way to his boss, the prison's staff doctor. He was getting some some feedback from the hospital that they were having a hard time trying to uh, uh, identify inmates who were being brought in unconscious and uh, trying to, you know, obviously wanting to separate staff from the inmates. That doctor turned to Bob Young, whose wife worked at the hospital, for support. I had a little bit of knowledge of the layout of the place and some of the people uh, asked me if I would go to the hospital and play, you know, liaison for him in the emergency room. And uh, that's where I spent probably four or five hours the rest of the night was uh, in the hospital. He says security had to be reinforced by state and city police. Get security at the hospital, but they're not licensed badge-carrying police officers. It's one thing from dealing with someone who parked in a handicapped spot, and it's something else, again, dealing with inmates from a prison that you don't know. Due to the sheer insanity of the situation, Bob Young says he barely had time to speak to his wife, who had been called in to help with the nightmare scenario. Could have been four or five o'clock in the morning, something we happened to cross paths finally. And 
you know, it was, you know, a few tears and a hug, and then, you know, we went on with our business, what we were doing, because we were going in different directions for different reasons. Bob Lovell says he spoke the next day with a nurse he knew at the hospital, and she told him some of her recollections from the incidents. It was a steady stream of people coming in, and not only do we have to tend to the patients, but we had uh, you know, a couple of police officers and state troopers in and around making sure that none of the prisoners made off with scalpels or things of that nature. A question that continues to be asked is, what exactly caused the fire in the first place? The fact is, nobody's quite sure how it really began. Bob Young says the findings were that it definitely began in the Dormitory G washroom near a wastebasket where some inmate clothing was hanging on the wall. It was caused by a human but they were still not able to, to prove that it was intentional. He says it very well could have been an accident. I mean, at the time, the inmates were allowed to smoke in the dormitories. So, you know, it, it could be just that. It was, a, you know, dropped a cigarette into a trash can. And it's possible that one of the inmates who perished that night might have taken knowledge with him about the true cause of the blaze. Well, that blaze was particularly stubborn. They say it was... Uh, an hour before they were able to knock it down, it was probably about six in the morning by the time they finally declared the fire out. It kind of gives you an idea of the, the ferocity of the fire. In the aftermath of the fire, still more problems had to be addressed. For example, where to house the survivors of Dormitory G. Bob Young says that dormitory was simply uninhabitable. You could see the broken windows and you could see, especially at the end where the bathroom was, the soot staining on the... Uh, concrete, you know, where the smoke was coming out. And uh, there was still a, you know, a flow of water coming down the stairs. They had to sleep on cots in the gymnasium before being transferred. Like it or not, you know, they were still inmates. They were still, uh, uh, you know, under sentence. And, uh, you know, one by one, they found them new homes, if you want to call it that, you know, whether it be in New York or Pennsylvania. And with Dorm G being on the second floor and all that water being poured in to douse the flames, that meant an inevitable problem for those immediately below. Poor guys that were in the unit underneath it lost a lot of their stuff because the water ended up finally, you know, breaking through the floor and dripping down into the, the lower level. It created yet another problem because now you've got to, uh, you know, try and do something with that unit to make it livable because, you know, you can't put two whole units in the gym. There's just not enough room. Eventually, operations returned to near normal, but the memories of that night from 45 years ago live on. Bob Lovell says that there were heroes that night, and he starts with the fire department. Watching the guys from the fire department attack that thing, knowing that they were dealing with a prison, and, you know, who knows what kind of people were inside the prison. They deserve all the credit in the world. Those firefighters were aided side by side by inmates. The prison has its own fire brigade made up of, of, of prisoners, and they were right there with, with the troops from the fire department. Knowing that the smoke from this fire was, was as toxic as it was, and that they, never mind, we're going to go in and fight it, you got to give these people thousand percent credit and he says that as bad as it was it could have been even worse when you look at it not only the, the situation that you have of a fire but the place where the fire is you know a prison and you think of all the possible things that could possibly go wrong 
a mass escape, for example, it didn't happen. For Bob Young, he too has memories. The big memory that I have, you know, pertaining to the fire itself, is while I'm out in the courtyard with, uh, you know, trying to do some triage and everything, is just uh, uh, because of all the broken windows and stuff, the smoke just pouring out of that uh, that unit. In the final analysis, Bob Lovell says it was like nothing else he had ever experienced. It was one of these twilight zone nights. What what am I doing here? You know, you look back at it and you say to yourself, we managed to contain the situation. How the hell did we do that with everything going on? That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I want to thank my guests for this episode, Bob Young, a former physician's assistant in the Danbury Federal Prison Medical Department, and Bob Lovell, a former Danbury police lieutenant who was the first outsider on the scene at that fire. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. Thank you.